Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. I am your American dental hygiene host, Melissa. And my name is Tabitha and I'm your Australian dental hygienist host. So if you are listening for the first time, welcome. We're so happy that you're here to our disruptors. Thank you for always listening and keeping on disrupting in your dental world. We have an awesome episode lined up for you today. Um, and this is this episode came to be from the beauty of social media and connecting us all over the world. Um, so I saw a post by Dr. Camille Z Zenobia. I'm sorry, I just mispronounced your name, Zenobia. Um, and she posted about oral immunology. And I was like, drop the microphone. What is that? And she was talking about all the things we love with oral systemic health and how important our oral health is on our overall body. And I was like, you're amazing. And I love you. And I think I posted, did we just become best friends? So welcome, Dr. Zenobia. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We're so happy. I cannot wait for the next, you know, 45 minutes of nerding out with you right now. So um, Dr. Zenobia is actually not in the dental field. Uh, she is a PhD who currently works in medical affairs while scaling an oral care company. Um, and it's called OSSA. Camille has also worked in as an academic and an industry scientist for many years as a subject matter expert in the host microbiome relationship of the oral cavity. So right up our alley. This is this is what we love. She continues to write academic articles in oral health, is peer-reviewed editor of oral health section of Frontiers Journal, and regularly voices oral health concerns, highlights, and advancements online as the oral health activist. And that's her Instagram handle. Camille is a non-conforming wife with two beautiful kids, two hilarious pets who loves sunrise, oral immunology, and is a Seattle native and loves a really good cup of coffee, which I am dying for right now. <laughs> and I love the non-conforming wife because I am one as well. <laughs> I would have made a fantastic 1950s husband, but not a great wife. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, Amazing. Um, Camille, let's start from the beginning, which is something we like to do on the podcast. You've graduated high school and you're going off to college. What made you make the choices that you made? <clears throat> well, let's be clear. I've had a long road since high school. I had a first career as a hairdresser and I owned a couple salons in Seattle. And I um, swiftly realized that I wanted to, I don't know, be more... Um, engaged in health in general. And so I went back to school. Um, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, but I wasn't sure uh, in what direction. And as I made my way through school, I really fell in love with um, microbiology, infectious disease. And basically the, the question of the day that was driving me was, why do some people when exposed to the very same virus or bacteria why do some people um, get more sick than others? And that was really the driver for me. And as I made my way through the PhD program, uh, we have to do several uh, rotations through different laboratories. And I ended up in a very humble lab uh, exploring the relationship between um, Porphyrmonas gingivalis and the oral cavity. And um, <clears throat> little did I know that the person I was working with was one of the main people in oral health research. And so when I would go to conferences, I was really aligned with all of the, all of the top tier people. And so I ended up doing a postdoctoral fellowship at University of Pennsylvania with uh, George Hajishingalist, who is 
incredible. Um, he's done a, a ton of work really developing mouse models for understanding that oral immunology layout. So I've had this great exposure. And then I went into industry. I worked for Colgate Palmolive, where I was a bench scientist and a clinical researcher um, driving clinical trials, mainly in the oral health field. So that's what I was doing. I made my way into medical affairs because I did miss infectious disease, but I happened to make it the transition during the pandemic. And that was really, really hard. <laughs> but anyway, so I uh, continued to do oral health research on the side. Um, as you've seen my publications and developing an oral care company. So I just have my hands all the way in. Um, it's my passion. So pretty interesting, like journey. I like, I love how you just, you know, feel like I'm going to be a scientist. <laughs> so if there's any young girls out there listening or older girls out there listening, you can do it. Yes. <laughs> if you're sitting there going, yes. I want to be a scientist, go do it. <laughs> you can. Yeah. I'll, I'll help you. Call me. <laughs> um, I did look up one of your studies. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that. The one that you did gut feeling, how bacteria can mess with your mood. Oh, that was just an article um, that I wrote for uh, like a little op-ed thing. Yeah. And um, it was basically, there's quite a few observations that I've noted in my research experience where the oral microbiome can be a source of GABA. And that's what we think of as the precursor to serotonin and giving us that good, good feeling. And um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the gut microbiome will kind of be the main source of GABA um, and getting you into a good mood. And that has been shown pretty, pretty well, but there's not, when the gut research happens, they miss the whole oral piece of it because they don't separate the two. And it's just so frustrating because it is the, <laughs> it's all part of the same thing, but it happens, what is happening in the oral cavity is so different, um, but remarkable. Uh, when we try to separate them, we, we can start seeing these differences occur, um, how the immunology is, is different, um, and I think that that particular piece, I was trying to highlight the fact that the oral microbiome does elicit this feel-good um, uh, chemical and that we should explore uh, if our oral health could contribute to that uh, piece. And there has been a lot of work in the periodontal um, disease research showing that with periodontal research comes depression. You have an exacerbation of that issue. So I think that there could be something there, but there's no evidence yet. We're not there yet. That's amazing. I'm just like smiling ear to ear as you're talking because like, this is all the stuff that we, you know, postulate all the time because we make these connections and we don't have the causal evidence to always tie it together, but we're like, okay, so we see this and we understand this. So wouldn't it be that? So you talking exactly about what you just said, it's like we we know about the negative piece with with periodontal disease and depression, as you mentioned. But if we promote a good oral microbiome, there could be an even bigger positive effect. And exactly, that's a game changer. So, because the struggles that we have as clinical dental hygienists is that we we circle the same mountain over and over again because we're telling people, oh, you need to take care of your mouth, and we do that by brushing and flossing. Right. And nobody wants to brush and floss. Nobody wants to do that. And, and nobody really patients don't understand the oral microbiome. What they understand is sugar causes cavities. And that's like the end of the knowledge base, because that's what our industry has driven as the main form of education for patients, unfortunately. And it's so much more than that. And we have so much more science and evidence to prove it. And, you know, that's that's part of why. Tabitha and I do this to disrupt the status quo and be the change you want to see in dentistry, because if you don't accept the science and you don't start practicing differently, nothing's ever going to change. We're going to keep on circling that mountain and never getting anywhere. So I love exactly. what you're saying. 
And um, I would love to dive a little bit deeper into oral immunology and how you were just talking about PG previously. Like, what are some of the research that you have uncovered during, you know, as you're as you're doing all this this studying? So, um, one of the things that got me excited in my um, in my graduate lab was the fact that this Porphyrhonus gingivalis is one of the you know most studied bacteria in the mouth because we know it contributes to the pathology of periodontal disease, but also it's cultivatable, like we can culture it and work with it and that makes it, you know, easy to explore. And so it, it is good and bad because we've learned a ton about it, but only because it's easy to work with. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I noticed was that it has this capacity to um, like basically change its coat depending on the inflammatory profile in your mouth. So it can change its metabolic structure and, uh, and use those inflammatory components as food. And so when you have an inflammatory moment, Porphyrhonus gingivalis can shift, like shape shift, if you will, and uh, start manipulating the immune system very specifically. And I actually wrote a paper in uh, 2021. <laughs> it's all a pandemic mess in my brain now. Yeah. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was highlighting the fact that, you know, this bug really well studied has been shown to tweak the immune system in a really interesting way that could be potentially utilized as an adjuvant for vaccines because of the type of uh, immune response it elicits, it's almost exactly what you might need for a mucosal protection against COVID, for example. And so we need to really think about what we're treating our mouths with, because if we have the capacity to kind of shapeshift our microbiome, in our mouths, like PG, make sure it's you know of a certain flavor, if you will. We could drive a stronger protection against something like COVID. That is incredible. Like my jaw just dropped as you were saying. <laughs> but it's you know we don't have, from the outside looking in at, at dentistry, we have not, like I had just mentioned, we, A, we're not doing a great job educating the, the public as to the pathogenesis of oral disease. And we're also not doing a great job in making recommendations for over-the-counter products that are actually going to harvest a healthy microbiome with commensal bugs that are going to help our bodies do what it was designed to do, which is to self-heal. So what are some of your suggestions of like with your research, what can we be doing differently? What could dental professionals learn from this episode and then adjust with their recommendations in their operatories, their surgeries to make their recommendations observe and promote a good micro oral microbiome? I, I think that we're at a frontier, honestly. Um, there's a lot we don't know because I'm just going to point this out. In the gut, it is really easy to um, take a mouse and explore it with immunohistochemistry and take those tissues and test them and whatever. But in the mouth, you have these bones and hard tissue and soft tissue all kind of mixed together and it makes it tricky. And so it's been um, really a, a long process in getting methods together that you can really harness evaluation of these mixed tissues. And so we have a long way to go before I feel we can really be confident that our whatever next gen oral care, if you will, um, is, is going to be something that we can all align with. And if I'm honest, we now understand that the oral microbiome can be akin to a fingerprint. And so I don't know that there will ever be a one size fits all. So my recommendation currently is know that the over-the-counter um, oral care, even the therapeutics, um, 
impact the oral microbiome in dubious ways. So we know that chlorhexidine, for example, um, is a great tool temporarily. And um, we, <laughs> but perhaps shouldn't be put on board with somebody with heart issues because it can deplete the nitric oxide producers in your mouth and create a bump in blood pressure, which is horrifying because people with periodontal disease who may need the chlorhexidine um, probably already have some heart issues to think about. And so, you know, what, <laughs> what can we do? Um, the uh, typical stannous fluoride that is used to over-the-counter treat gingivitis, for example, it does this really cool thing <laughs> with um, neutrophils in that it, it actually induces apoptosis, which can be good um, because it's your neutrophils that kind of go on this chronic inflammatory high during um, gingivitis and periodontal disease. And if you turn them down, you get a wound repair. So wound repair is essential. You need that kind of dynamic flux of some inflammation, some wound repair. And we can think about the oral cavity as you masticate throughout the day, you know, you're, you're shifting those tissues. And so um, some inflammation is required and it's good, but we also need the cycles of wound repair. However, stannous fluoride also causes sloughing in some people. It's cytotoxic. And so it's not surprising that some people can't handle it. And so if we just are mindful and we see that we've put on board uh, stannous fluoride and they don't seem to be getting better, take them off that, moves to something else. Also SLS, sodium lauryl mm -hmm. sulfate is um, really Wait. hard for many, many people. And yeah. so it's not something that we should be putting in our mouths in my opinion. Um, I just think it's too tricky. Some people are fine with it, but I would say enough are not that it's concerning. And there are even, um, I think Sensodyne went totally SLS free. I'm not sure, double check me yeah, on that, did. but. No, they did. A lot of the <clears throat> companies, uh, it's something I've advocated for a long time to just ditch it from everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we just have to be mindful of these little yeah. ingredients and and know that uh, we may need to be shifting around and, and toying with the, the ingredients with our patients to make sure that there's something that works. And it's frustrating because there's not a lot of natural options that feel effective. Right, because patients are so programmed with the, the foaming action that they feel that's what creates their clean, like I've brushed my teeth, my mouth is clean because of the foaming. And it is, it's hard to get used to it when it's what you've known your whole life. But once you do, you don't really miss it anymore. Um, and same thing with traditional hygiene, like um, Tabitha and I don't practice traditional hygiene for our patients. We use what we call guided biofilm therapy. It's a different procedure. It's a lot less invasive and it's more comprehensive at removing the pathogenic bacteria during a treatment. But patients don't, in the beginning, when you make that shift, they're used to polishing their teeth with the gritty paste at the end. So it's that same response that they're like, but you didn't polish my teeth. Well, actually I did, but we did it in a less invasive way and we, we actually get a better result too. So it's like, it's, it's just very hard because humans are so used to what they have. And, and I think it's human nature to also feel like, well, hold on, you didn't give me what I was supposed to get. And, you know, it, it's hard to let go of these legacy things, even though like there's so much evidence to show us that there's a better way to do it. And this is actually better for you. So, um, I think as, you know, just as a dental professional, we just really have to keep digging into the science, be committed to being lifelong learners that we took an oath to becoming when we entered this profession and, and explore and question, get curious. You know, when you have your sales reps come in, you know, and they're, they're talking about a new product line and all the, the benefits of what it can do, ask about the oral microbiome, ask about the negative side effects, you know, and I know it's hard sometimes when you're like rushing between patients and a sales rep wants to talk to you and you have like zero time to do it. But, you know, get curious about the, the oral microbiome. Is it promoting it or is it actually hurting it? Like when we look at products that say kills 99% of the bacteria, why do we want to kill 99% yeah. of the bacteria? Exactly. exactly. I have a question. I think that, yeah, Sorry. go ahead. 
a question for you. One of the things that concerns me, well, look, I don't recommend floss usually to anyone because I don't actually think it works because there's no clinical evidence to support it. But that's another discussion. But one <laughs> of the things that worries me about floss is the PFAs in it. Um, what are your thoughts on PFAs being, you know, put in the mouth? I Again, I think that all of these, we have not explored enough. We don't have the answers and it's really unfortunate. Uh, I think that, you know, broadly, the whole hygiene hypothesis, which is being challenged right now, um, has just made a lot of assumptions about the cleanliness of our hands and our guts, but they've never really addressed the mouth. And we still have the same oral care that we've had since the 50s is when we really pioneered fluoride for general purpose. And that tracks really well with the hygiene hypothesis. And it begs the question. It's not like the trials that we have have never looked at long-term use and allergies or autoimmune disorders or, you know, like all of that is untouched territory. And I think it needs a revisit. Yeah. That's incredible. And what do you think, uh, what, what are some of your thoughts on probiotics, like with patients especially that are going through periodontal um, treatment and using probiotics as part of that treatment? There's some interesting um, research there. I think that unlike the gut where you take the probiotic and it has to go through your gastric system, which is really, it's going to kill anything really. Um, and unless you have some coding there to get it through. Um, I think that using probiotics in the mouth is promising. Um, all of it is going to be transient <clears throat> because typically we have well-established ecology. It's very stable, um, but certainly, you know, as a short-term treatment, like any perio um, assist, you just need to kind of bring the whole system back to center. And so I am hopeful that, you know, there are some out there that that will allow us to use them as tools in that way. But I don't know that it's going to be like a, again, a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I know that when you think all the way down to the other side of the body, um, when we're thinking of yeast infections for women, for example, it could be bacterial or fungal what sets the dysbiosis. And so depending on what you go to the shelf for, you might not be correcting the right thing and you kind of have to troubleshoot. And I think it's gonna be like that for the oral cavity where we have to troubleshoot to find the right one. So have you, in your research, have you uh, looked at like salivary testing and, and um, you know, cause that's something that offices are doing, I think it's becoming more commonplace now because we have the ability to have more precise diagnostics that can help us lead patients down the road that is more customized to their situation. And then when we also look at their medical history and take their genetic predisposition into, into consideration, then we're really treating the whole person and not just a one-size-fits-all approach to their healthcare and their oral health. Um, has there been some studies that you're aware of with those, that kind of like dental point of care sampling and, and how that makes things any different in your research or? Um, I think that salivary diagnostics is exciting, but again, um, I, I don't know if you're talking about microbiome specific testing or just salivary diagnostics um, kind of as it relates to uh, different pathologies. But if we think of the oral microbiome as a fingerprint. I think that depending on kind of your genetics and your oral microbiome, it's gonna flux pretty wildly between people. And that's what I've seen in my research is that you can't necessarily have a, uh, let's see, what am I trying to say? A, a zero point, if you will. like you can't have no inflammation in the oral cavity. The healthiest person should have some, and that's good. So dialing in what that looks like, I think 
is tricky. I do know uh, Dr. Glogauer at University of Toronto is going through FDA approval for a salivary um, diagnostic for inflammation in the oral cavity. And so it's a color-coded um, kind of spit test, if you will. And if it turns color at all, you have inflammation, you should probably go in and probe to see where it is and where to treat. Um, because he noticed that people really aren't probing anymore. And, you know, I think we can all get on board with that. We don't necessarily need to probe everybody, <laughs> but we also want to know when there's an issue. So mm -hmm. I'm excited for that piece to come forward. As far as salivary diagnostics for all sorts of things, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of work being done in this category that I think is exciting. The yeah. uh, microbiome testing, sorry, the microbiome testing, again, we all have a fingerprint in our mouths. And so uh, I think that we're still at a frontier and we should just take these pieces of information and, um, you know, use them accordingly. If there does seem to be a dysbiosis, but you don't see any pathology, maybe we're good. Yeah, I was at um, Europerio last week and they were. I went to one of the lectures on, um, I did all the microbiome lectures, I did an afternoon of them and we did some salivary test lectures and stuff and they were talking about how they're very close to having a test chair side for non-dental professionals for testing saliva and looking at risk factors of periodontal disease so that this could go into places like pharmacies or where, because... The, the big problem is the majority globally, it's not an issue just in Australia or America or, or other countries. It, it seems to be a global issue that most people aren't getting access to a dental surgery to have those screenings. So if we could put those screenings, you know, I'd love more, better access to dental, but that's a very difficult thing money-wise and that's going to take us many years to fix. But if we could put these screenings into the child nurse or into the chemist or somewhere where they do frequent all the time, then we are going to um, be able to identify and, and risk assess patients at a much earlier stage as well, which is quite interesting. So, yeah, it was it was a great conference. I'd recommend anyone that's listening. It's in Vienna, 2025. I'm not associated. I'm not getting a plug here, but it is really, really good. And there were some great lectures on it um, over there. Yeah, it's it's. I, I love that that's where things are moving to, but dentistry needs to level up in order for that to work because they're doing these precise tests that are giving us great diagnostic information and letting patients know these are your risk factors and a b c and d can happen if you don't take action but then if you go to if that person does take action and they go to a dental practice that is just doing very basic legacy dental procedures and just doing that basic sugar causes cavities education we're not really helping them get where they need to go. No. So what changes do you see from the outside looking in that dentistry really needs to start doing to kind of get on get on level with the science? Because I don't feel like dentistry as a whole is really at this frontier with the oral microbiome. I agree with you. Uh, I can only say, I feel like there needs to be a concerted effort from the people who are either creating products or um, or advising on oral pathology in in ways of research to get that information to the dentist, like really go in. So in medical affairs, what I do is I go in and I talk to physicians all the time about how they're treating patients and and how it's going basically um, with whatever therapeutics. And I think the same needs to be done for oral care. That conversation really isn't happening. They're just, I'm here to sell you a product, not how is it going with my product? How, what's right. the, do you see the outcomes? What, you know, do you have problems with it? Are you seeing any, I don't think that dialogue is really there. And I think that's a deficiency. Mm. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. I had many, many conversations with uh, one rep about a product that had an additive in it that is no longer on the market. And I would argue with that rep constantly. 
And they would say, well, it's FDA cleared. I said, the FDA clears a lot of things that are known car carcinogens. So um, that's not going to sell me on it. Sorry. <laughs> and, and I see it too as an adjunct professor um, at Bergen Community College with the dental hygiene students. We get these reps that come in and they educate on products rather than educating on like, it's not a, a speaker coming in and teaching about disease. They're really just offloading their products. And they, they know that if they can get them as a baby hygienist, they're probably going to keep recommending that product throughout their career. So it's, it's pretty discouraging to see how manipulative some of these companies can be with their sales tactics. Um, and, and then one of them actually like kind of came at us as the adjunct professors and they're like, we noticed a decline when we survey your students. Like when we first came in, they, they were all like, yes, I will recommend your product. And then by the time they're graduating, we, we lost like 20% of them. Why is that happening? And I'm like, I just said, I was like, well, I question everything that they recommend. And I want to know the reason behind their, their, what's their diagnosis and why are you making this recommendation? Because patients don't deserve a one size fits all. They deserve a customized program based on their needs and based on the disease they present with and based on what our goals are and what we're trying to achieve. So yeah, if your product doesn't fit in that, I'm not telling them to use it. They didn't really like that. But, I mean, oh. I think, I, yeah, I don't think they actually know the science enough and perhaps the, the company selling hasn't evaluated the science enough to really go deep with you. And I think that that is a sad state of affairs when we're just relying on the same actives just regurgitated in different formulas over and over and over. It's not a solution. Yeah. Even when like people talk about things like xylitol, which is great, but we're like, okay, well, there's also erythritol. Why not erythritol? And they look at you like they don't even know what that is. They have no idea. Yes, exactly. And I think that, you know, it's the difference of having a sales rep as opposed to somebody in medical affairs or whatever who has the capacity to really go deep in the science and have those conversations. And I think that's what needs to happen. We need to be going in with a whole different, you know, a rep is to sell you products. Somebody from the company who really needs to know what, how your, how the products are doing in your hands, getting that feedback and understanding what the problems are or what the benefits are that they may not have seen. I think that's a, a wide open space here and it needs to happen. And it's funny because we, if, if, if we provide care to standard of care, we are doing all of the assessments every time a patient comes in to collect the data to see if it's even working. But not everyone, as you mentioned earlier, probing and doing the standard of care to be able to get that data to critically appraise, yes, it's working, no, it's not working. And we in the dental profession like to blame the patients all the time. Oh, well, they're not compliant. They're not doing this. They're not listening. And to an extent, yes, does that happen? Absolutely. But it goes back to, and Tabitha and I have a whole episode on how you give oral hygiene instruction and, and taking your bias out of it about, you know, how we're having these discussions with our patients and, and how we're, you know, like she mentioned, she's not really an advocate for floss. I'm not either. There's there's ways that patients can control this, this uh, bacteria without using these things. So you know, it's, it's, it's a cumulative issue and it definitely needs to be attacked from, from various, uh, various vantage points, but just having this, this information out and, and sharing your knowledge is, is like, I'm so appreciative of that because it helps just make people think. And if you just stop exactly. and get a little bit, like it can really help shift your mindset. And, and there's a whole other amazing side waiting for you because the bottom line is as dental hygienists we get really burnt out we have like pressure coming from so many different ways and we have a little bit of time and a lot of things to accomplish with patients but we also have so much opportunity because out of all healthcare providers if patients listen to our recommendations we see them literally more than anybody else does at a minimum of twice a year if not with periodontal disease when it's in remission we should be seeing them four times a year so we have so much opportunity to have an impact, not just here, but the subsequent positive impact of their systemic health. And that's what like sets my heart on fire. And I want other yes. dental professionals to know that they have that power too. You know, it's absolutely. 
I, so, I think that as we uncover more um, pathways of the oral cavity, I think we're going to be blown away by yeah. the impact that it has. So yeah, that's coming. I promise. And I think <laughs> where precision healthcare comes in. You know, we really need to be making sure we're doing personalized precision healthcare, no matter what area of health you work in. And it's really time in dental that we step up and be part of the health community, not to the side, but part of yeah. you know the overall health. Like, you know, we're all linked together and that's really important. I have a, a question for you, though. What, what oral products do you use? I'm interested to know. Well, <laughs> I, I'm currently using my own. So. Yeah. Um, I, it is um, all natural. Uh, it has some very low um, abrasivity, uh, so there's that. But then I have um, vitamin B3 and hyaluronic acid in there. And uh, basically, it's uh, I've done I've done my own research in the vitamin B3, and it hits on um, very specific pathways that look to be really promising in oral health generally, just to get that modulation of uh, anti-inflammatory. And so far, I've been using it for a year, and I'm going to say that I am not. A, a flosser unless I've had corn or popcorn <laughs> and <laughs> and <laughs> and anyway so I went back to the dentist they know I mean they're all experiencing my product right now but um, they said that I have impeccable oral health right now which is I've always had a low-level gingivitis um, and I I had a lot less time in the chair, meaning they didn't have to scrape or dig or, so that was all promising. And um, it, they, my teeth feel clean. So I'm hopeful. I have, um, I have a clinician evaluating the mechanism of action now, um, ex vivo work. And he, if successful, will go into the clinical um, development phase and we'll get a really true assessment for the compound. So yeah. I'm excited. And how long do you think, what's the projected time that this should take before you are hoping to launch to market? I am hoping to do a, a, at minimum a soft launch in August. Oh, wow. Really? And then work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all. So I've been, I have it in consumer testing right now to yeah. get some feedback. And because I can, I can say that I don't expect this to be a one size fits all, but it's gentle enough that it shouldn't harm anybody. Yeah. Um, and so that's the goal is no harm, right? So uh, I'm just trying to get an assessment. So far, the feedback has been amazing. People really like it. So the problem with vitamin B3 is that it's bitter. Um, yeah. And so we had to finesse the formula to make sure that it would be palatable and it seems to be working. Um, so I'm excited to see where we can take this. Um, I will say that taste receptors have been identified as immune regulators, specifically in the oral cavity. And so I'm hopeful that there's some more um, work to be done in that category. Yeah, it's interesting. I always make a joke that um, whoever does the taste testing at most oral healthcare products, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> my, my business partner is a flavorist, and that has been her life: is oral care product uh, testing and formulating. And so, um, yeah, that's not my job, thankfully. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, who created this fake bubblegum flavor? It's terrible. <laughs> Yes, yeah. exactly. It flavors <laughs> nasty. Tell us a little bit about the brand and um, what you know. Obviously, it's causing no harm, which is amazing. But what are what are some of the things that you're hoping to see um, your products going to promote oral health wise? Well, just by kind of having that cycle of uh, anti-inflammatory wound repair that is natural, you won't get the overgrowth. Um, that happens with the periodontal um, bugs, if you will, 
because the you need like a substantial amount of inflammation to be more constant for those um, that community to flourish. Mm -hmm. And so by keeping them at bay, just by cycling that inflammatory um, system, I I hope that it will be a true clinical benefit, i.e. that we have less inflammation overall, um, your microbiome, you know, is in a state of health, um, because you're not getting that overgrowth or sideways inflammatory um, overgrowth of, of dental pathogens. Um, I can't say much about the antimicrobial aspect because I'm not using any antimicrobials, but um, vitamin B3 has been shown to upregulate your natural antimicrobials from keratinocytes. And so I have some hope that that is a contributor um, and that we'll have a little bit of natural ability to, to bring those bacteria into a nice stable um, community. That's so cool. I love it. Tell me a little bit too about, cause I saw when I was looking at your product line, I saw that you talk um, about anti-aging and oral health, share a little bit of the benefit of that. So I know that we can all relate to the aging face and we get jowling around the, um, mandible. And that is really because your whole skull is um, withering, unfortunately, during the course of the aging process. But the majority of it is coming from the fact that our teeth are constantly challenged. And so we have this um, potential if we are treating appropriately and keeping that inflammation at bay, we could potentially salvage much more of the bone during the aging process. Mm. And vitamin B3 is also known as nicotinamide. And I think that it, anybody in skincare can understand mm -hmm. the benefits of nicotinamide. And so that whole aspect will be true in the mouth as well, where by cycling that inflammatory profile, you're going to have a lot more wound repair coming up and less of the bone degradation. So those are long-term studies that are going to take a while to uncover, but that's my hope. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's something that we know happens with, with tooth loss or, you know, Tabitha and I talk a lot too about in, dental implant maintenance. Um, that's actually how she and I met. Oh, the implants. And, yeah, excuse me. The implants. It's becoming too much of a fad in my opinion. Oh, I would love to hear this. I don't disagree with you at all, but I would love to hear your theory. <laughs> I think I think that we're too too quick to go straight to implant. Um, and and bridge <laughs> and bridging it shouldn't be put aside. I think that we should still think of bridging when it when it's appropriate um, because the materials that go into the bone your periodontal ligament is gone, right? It's no longer there when you put in an implant. And that is the regulator of wound repair. We have such a powerful ability to induce wound repair with that periodontal ligament present. And when it's gone, the, the tissue around that implant does not ever look normal, ever. And it's because the, the whole system has been disrupted and the tissue that surrounds the implant is unable to really, it's going to always look like a foreign body. And we know that that doesn't do well generally long-term. And so <clears throat> I think that if you have no teeth and you do three implants and get a nice full mouth and really are active about taking care of those implant um, entry Points, I think that that's a good idea. But like, if I lost one of my incisors, I would do a bridge in a heartbeat. Gotcha. Yeah, we I don't. Think, yeah, sorry. I think one of the big problems is, is that we're too quick to get rid of teeth that we can save. And um, that too. implants replace missing teeth. They don't replace teeth. So we should always, you know, go for saving what we can. 
what was there is always so much better engineered than what we replace it with. So let's go with the good engineering first and only step yes. in when we really, really have to. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same exact thing. It should be like the absolute last resort, you know, whatever Agreed. else we can. And, and, you know, it's it's like a glamorous thing. It's like if somebody comes in and they have raging periodontal disease and they also have dental restorative needs, they're looking at a giant, you know, bill to to achieve that and also it's time consuming and they have to put effort in and again it's how we message to the patient audience like oh teeth in a day oh you can get this oh look how glamorous this person looks now and they don't even like most of them get this work done and then they think they have bionic mouths and they don't even have to come in for maintenance at all and then then all of a sudden now we have failing implants and periimplantitis and what's the systemic impact on that and I, I, you know, I love that you had just shared too, because I'll be honest, it's a piece that I didn't realize that big of a connection is how much the periodontal ligament is an assistant in wound healing. Like, I know that we can keep, you know, we need to do things to keep it healthy, but I didn't put those two together. You know, I know that we don't have as much of a, immune, a positive immune response with implants because that tissue is more like scar tissue now, but it's, yeah, it's because yeah. we don't get that white blood supply. We don't have that. Um, it doesn't benefit from that periodontal ligament with the white blood supply there to help with healing. So implants are exactly. always going to have a level of inflammation that we're trying to control. They're never going to. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we're always trying to control a level of inflammation with an implant. And that's one of the. I, I would walk back that scar tissue comment, though, only because it never truly heals. It's like an open yeah. wound forever. And uh, that is the disservice, like what is happening? Okay, so one of the things I'd like to bring to the fore is that uh, there's a lot of kind of new frontier science around the blood microbiome. And of course, in dental, we've known that oral pathogens can you know, be found in arterial plaques. We've known this for what, 20, 30 years? And now we're talking about the blood microbiome and oh my gosh, half dermal derived, half oral in a normal healthy person. And so that alone would suggest that there is an importance to what type of oral microbiome is kind of moving through your vascular system at any given point. And so if you have something like an open wound from a periodontal implant forevermore, I could see it having devastating long-term systemic issues because it will never heal. It will never have the same microbiome as the rest of the teeth. Mm. And it's going to kind of flavor that systemic impact, in my so, opinion. That's... Okay. Again, future science. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's it's just more evidence that we need to save teeth. And that yeah. should be a very last yes. Exactly. Yes. Wow. This has just been like, I knew this was going to be amazing. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to learn more, obviously, like we said, we're going to link some um, information into the show notes from some of your research articles. I will connect your Instagram handle in there too. So you, everybody can go over and give you a follow at the oral health activist. Um, but is there anything else? Like, do you do any education for dental professionals or anything like that? Like I would, I would love well, to take a that, dive with you. I would love to do that. I, so with my um, oral health line, I, that's my whole goal is to provide education. I don't want to go in for a hard sell. I, that's not my point. I think that education is key. And then, you know, acceptance of a product that works is obvious, right? That's all I want to deliver is a working product and have a level of education that goes with it that is meaningful. So I am completely open to doing classes. I do, in my medical affairs position, I teach all the time. Um, it's, part of, it's part of who I am. It's part of what I do. I would love to. I don't typically go into dental offices, but of course, with my launch, I am um, prepared to do that. 
And really, I would like to deliver, you know, much more than just my product, because I think a level of understanding as a whole around mm. how impactful the oral microbiome really could be, I, I think that that's, that's something that's perhaps more meaningful than any of my products will ever be. I have a little bit of a question for for listeners today who want to learn more about the oral microbiome. Where should they start? Ah, uh, that's a great question. I'm such I, I I'm so deep in the weeds on this. Like, <laughs> I'll post something, and my my family is like, I don't even understand like any of those sentences. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, that's a great question. I would say um, maybe I have to write something. <laughs> I was thinking you have to write a course and put it on my platform. And yeah, oh, I'm for dummies. That's what we need. Yes, yes. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> So if you just get an oral microbiome for dummies, that would be fantastic. It really would. Noted. So Noted. I'm writing this down. <laughs> we would love that. I did. My last my last um, publication was a review for Frontiers um, in, in a special section. And uh, I tried to make this one a lot more accessible. Um, talking about the impact of the oral cavity on the gut and that systemic connection, really kind of pulling it all together. Um, and that, that was my latest paper that was published this year. And I think, I hope that I made it accessible enough for most people to engage with. Yep. We'll post we'll the, yeah. get the link to that too and put that in the show yeah. notes. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Camille, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you and, and sharing the, like, I feel like we've just like, hit the the tip of the iceberg here with all of the amazing science and, and connections that you know um, but it's just so exciting for the future of of dental hygiene and dentistry and patient care and it's just you know we have we have such an impact on our patients and tabitha and i promote be a healthcare hygienist and really you know learn that connection and and leverage that knowledge and and Take control of your profession. We have we have very little control, unfortunately, because we're managed by dentistry. But you know what? You can control the conversations you have with your patients and you can control the type of care you provide chairside and the products that you recommend. So take that control back, really run with it and, and help people understand how much you can help them on a on a systemic level. It's so much bigger than what we've known and how we're we're educated. Um, so thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing to help promote this message and help help people understand, you know, not all, not only dental professionals, but medical professionals and, and the patients. Like, I, I think this is incredible. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. Oh, of course. You are a disruptor for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we will link all of the information in the show notes, but again, go over to Instagram and follow the oral health activist and um, check out all of these scientific goodies that Camille has on her Instagram. Until next time, keep on disrupting. Bye. Bye. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.